In those days, Caesar Augusta issued a decree that a census should be taken in the entire, the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Curianus was the governor of Syria, and everyone went to, to his own town to register. So Joseph also went up to the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea in Bethlehem, to the, to the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be, pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in, the, in cloths and placed him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I, give you, I bring you good news of great joy, that will be for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ, the Lord. This, this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with an angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word, spread the word concerning what had hap- what been told about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherd said to them. But Mary treasured, uh, treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned and glorified and glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise him, he was named Jesus, the name that the angel had given him before he had been conceived. This is the word of the Lord. Around this time of the year, and maybe a bit before Christmas, there's always something that calls into question the historic Christian faith. Maybe it's a news article. Maybe there'll be talk of the Gospel of Thomas, disproving every other gospel that we have in the Bible. Well, the recent offering is this. I don't know if you've got Amazon Prime. It's really not worth the money, I I think, I've decided. This is one, Bible Conspiracies. Have you come across this one? I watched a bit of it, but honestly, it gets more and more ridiculous. The idea is someone finds a conspiracy. You see the wording here, hidden, hidden in the Bible are ancient secrets. Do you remember the, the, the Bible code? Drosnan, he wrote the Bible, could you remember that? It was a similar kind of thing, hidden in the Bible or ancient secrets. The marriage of Jesus and Mary and their children, the destruction of the Tower of Babel by an alien race called the, whatever, and the hidden code that holds the revelation about future events. This particular episode, though, says that we've got the story about Jesus confused with an ancient philosopher known as Apollinarius. Jesus has been confused with a Greek philosopher, who lived at the same time and was thought to restore life to the dead, according to a new documentary. Descriptions of Jesus' life and the miracles he performed in the New Testament may have been mistaken for preacher Apollonius of Tyon. There are striking physical similarities between the two, and there is more evidence that Apollonius existed. The Amazon documentary, Bible Conspiracies, suggests that Jesus might actually be Apollonius. The documentary does not dispute that Jesus existed as a historical figure. That is kind of them. However, 
it claims that the person described in the New Testament as the Son of God may have been Apollonius. Apollonius of Tyre was born in the third or fourth year BC in central Anatolia. Apollonius of Tyre was born in the third or fourth year BC in central Anatolia. I've already said that, haven't I? But both Jesus and Apollonius were preachers and supposedly performed miracles in the first century AD. They're both depicted as having long beards. The series explains how Apollonius rose to prominence by performing miracles and amassing followers in a similar way to Jesus. He became a disciple of Pythagoras, remember the theorem, renouncing flesh, wine, and women. He wore no shoes and let his hair and beard grow long, the documentary reveals. It continues, he soon became a reformer and fixed his abode in the temple of Hescapolis. Aurelian, the Roman emperor, vowed to erect temples and statues to his honor. Was there ever anything more holy among men? He reportedly restored life to the dead and spoke of things beyond the human reach. And, unlike Jesus, there is evidence to prove that Apollonius actually existed. There's some slight bias in the documentary. The explosive claims go against more traditional views of Apollonius that believed him to be of no more than a philosopher. Just for one moment, imagine they're right. We've got confused. Jesus, you've got it all wrong. Apollonius is the guy really we are thinking about when we talk about Jesus. He is the Christ character. He is the Jesus of history. But you've got yourself confused, guys. If that is the case, and around this time of the year, there'll be several other things come out around Easter. Easter's we've got a few months yet. We've been given a reprieve. What will you do? What will you think? If he is right, if the makers of the documentary are right, walk away now. Last person I'd switch off the lights. Sell the building, nightclub maybe, cinema, since Dublin Road's now closed, knock it down for car parking. What do you think? It's just pointless. We are fools. We've got it wrong. I should go and be a doctor. <laughs> do you think Luke, whenever he wrote his gospel, which simply means biography of Jesus, do you think Luke would let him away with this, would let the documentary authors, writers, producers away with it. You see, for some, Christianity is merely a myth, and by myth I mean a good story, a gripping story, an interesting story, possibly a convincing story, but not really true, not rooted in history, not real. When it comes to Jesus, the figure, Jesus, the man, some will say, well, yes, that's a pleasant thing for you to believe. It might give you hope. It might cheer you up on a dark night. It might give you a Christmas holiday. It might give you an Easter holiday. But beyond that, it's not true. He really didn't exist. He is in the category of myth, fairy tale, wishful thinking. Of course, Luke would be aware of these kinds of suggestions, these kinds of objections to the Christians who were traveling, particularly Paul. Remember, Luke's gospel is associated with the Apostle Paul and his mission. This is his tract. 
around the Gentile world, those who had no background, do you think Luke would let them, us, away with thinking it's mere myth? Or would Luke want to scream at us, no, it's fact. It actually happened. That's what he's attempting in his gospel. He wants those, particularly Theophilus, who have received it, to trust it. Not only to trust it, but to trust the one about whom the gospel has been written, Jesus Christ. He wants to establish the facts, roll out the facts, put them in an order. You see this from chapter 1, verse 1 to 4. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the Word. He wants to order the events so that they make sense. He wants to order the events so that as they make sense, people will realize, no, no, this man, Jesus, actually existed, A, and B, I've got to do something with this Jesus. You can't walk away from this evidence that he rolls out in his gospel and go, "Ah, that's a nice story. I'll move on to Apollonius now. He simply wouldn't let us aware with that. In fact, verse 4, you see that? I'm doing all this, Theophilus, so that, verse 4, you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. He wants those who receive this message, this gospel, to be absolutely certain, beyond any shadow of doubt, that it actually happened in time and space, in history and geography. It's not myth. I don't know where you're at. What do you think? I said this a couple of weeks ago. Maybe you've come here, and in the dark moments of your life, or in the darker moments of your days, middle of the night, you think, not so sure. Not so sure it really happened. Perhaps you base your acceptance of something on how you feel. Well, look would have you not do that. He would rather you would look at the evidence as he has ordered it and as he explains it. So, how does he go about this? Well, in this bit and in the bits before, the thing that Dave preached on last week, the thing that I preached on a couple of weeks ago, he, he relates the earthly with the heavenly. He, he relates the events on earth with God's, the heavenly interpretation of those events. It's no surprise that Luke writes this way. His friend, possibly mentor, certainly co-belligerent in the work of the gospel around the ancient Gentile world, did exactly the same. Paul did exactly the same. Paul gave, for example, in those great statements in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, historical event, Christ died. He gave us those. Christ died, the historical event, and then the interpretation for our sins. He combines the earthly, Christ died, the event, with the interpretation, the heavenly interpretation for our sins. Yeah, yeah, everyone dies. It's not that unusual. But what makes Jesus different is that he dies, quote from Paul, the heavenly interpretation for our sins. And look, 
who has accompanied Paul in his missions to the Gentiles, does exactly the same thing. He takes an earthly happening and helps us understanding by giving us the heavenly interpretation. And that's exactly what we've got here in chapter 2 of Luke. We have earthly event with heavenly interpretation. But where does he begin? Have a look, chapter 2, verse 1. He begins with an earthly ruler. In fact, two earthly rulers. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. Verse 2, this was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to his own hometown to register. Now, the rest of the world's religious documents don't really sound like this. You go to the Bhagavata. You go to the writings of other religious leaders. There isn't such an attempt to describe events, setting them in her historical context, rooting everything that's happened and therefore the claims about what has happened in history, in geography, in chronology. This is why the Bible is entirely different. I'll tell you why, because these things actually happened. Well, verse 1, we have a ruler, a king, Caesar Augustus. If you were a Christian believer, hearing about Caesar Augustus, you would be instantly struck with fear. You know what happened to the Christians? The apostle Peter himself killed on a cross upside down. You, you would be struck with fear, and you would have had to declare that Caesar is Lord. The God King was an ancient phenomenon, and Caesar, this Caesar, would have been worshipped. But here we have Luke drawing our attention to a heavenly thing, a heavenly happening in the context of an earthly ruler. In fact, two earthly rulers, Caesar Augustus and Quirinius. Now, I don't know if you felt the full force or effect of Richard Dawkins. We talked about him a couple of weeks ago, who says it's all myth. Perhaps you've had that conversation in the university student union, and you've talked about Luke and what Luke has had to say. Over this week, there's the large student mission with Don Carson at Queen's University, and in a week's time, it'll be Jordanstown's mission with Dave. I guarantee you there will be the objection to your claims, to your message. Because what people will say, well, for a start, see all this stuff here in chapter 2, verse 1 to 3. It's rubbish. Clearly, it's been proved to be rubbish because Luke gets his chronology wrong. Now, just for a moment, you need to see this. We've got some significant timeline issues. The three characters that are mentioned in Luke chapter 1 and 2 are Caesar Augustus. Caesar between 21, sorry, 27 BC and 14 AD. Quirinius, Herod the Great. The difficulty is Quirinius was governor from 6 AD onwards. 
The further difficulty is that Herod the Great, who is mentioned in chapter 1, verse 5, let me read it out, in the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah. You remember a couple of weeks ago, we talked about this priest who was in the temple. The angel came to this priest, told him there'd be a baby, and then there'd be another baby. The difficulty is, it was thought that Herod the Great died in 4 B.C., so, unless the gestation period for these two women, Elizabeth and Mary, was something like eight years or so, I don't think that, an elephant is two years, isn't that right? No. No one knows. Queen's students, we're the Jordanstown students. Uh, no one knows. It's a, it's a, there's an issue. There are timeline issues around the detail of chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. You've got heard the Greek died in 4 BC. You have Quirinius, 6 AD. What is going on? How can we talk to those people who oppose us and oppose our message, oppose the Bible's message? What do we do? Well, it's not that difficult. Anytime you've got a Bible issue like this thrown up to you, a contradiction or a difficulty, the contradiction or a difficulty normally is in the mind, not in the book. Dionysius, a monk, was charged to recalibrate the Roman calendar around the birth of Jesus, hence B.C., before Christ, and A.D., Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. In the history department, I assume, at Queen's University, you're now calling it B.C.E. and C.E., B.C.E., before Common Era, and C.E., Common Era. It's political correctness, messing with our calendar. But Dionysius the monk, in a well-attested fashion, with great evidence, placed the birth of Jesus wrongly because he got the death of Herod the Great wrong. He really was four to six years out in terms of the death of Herod. So his placing of zero when Jesus purported to have been born by the Dionysian calendar, it's wrong. So please don't let anyone throw you whenever chapter two, one to three, is chatted about between you and your mates over coffee or over a pint. Also, verse two, something more to it as well. There's history here, but think of the political turmoil that's occurring during this period of time. The Jews were trying to fight back. They wanted revolution. The Jews had been oppressed. The Romans had conquered them. The great Caesar, Augustus, didn't remove Herod. Rather, they co-led it was actually the Romans. But this amalgam of Caesar and Herod the Great, well, brought distinct instability, even though Herod was a king and Caesar Augustus, the Caesar. Quirinius, being the governor at that time, his census, this first census, chapter 2, was a big event. This census 
was described here, chapter 2, as the first census. The word first, what does it mean? Well, it could mean, chronologically, the first ever census to take place. Or it could mean a census of such great prominence that it had such a devastating effect on that nation that it was noted. Like Brexit in a couple of months' time. Oh, when is it? Next month? But 6 AD is when Quirinius was imposed. Surely it ought to have been around that time. Now, when it comes to censuses, or sensi, is that the plural? When it comes to these kind of recording of who's around, remember we're talking about the ancient world. In the sense of 2011, you simply filled something out. Someone picked it up and called at your door, and it was to be filled out on a particular day, Sunday, whatever it was, in 2011. That's how you were recorded. That's how you, when you've turned 18, have got a vote, because you were recorded back in, well, whenever that was. Back then, can you imagine what it was like? No computers. To, to communicate with someone across a country, how long would that have taken? To organize such a thing, can you imagine what that was like? Because this census was such an incredible such an upside-down event for everyone. And notice the universal description there in verse 1 of chapter 2, the entire Roman world, that universal description, the known world at the time. It would have taken years to have compiled the information. And possibly Quirinius was the name attached to that particular census because it was in his day, 6 AD, that all the information had been gathered, notated, organized, where all the records were in. It might have been. I'm spending some time on this because is Luke lying? Chapter 1, verse 4. Because this kind of thing could throw you. This kind of thing could throw me once or twice. It has. When I've been in the conversation and someone said to me, you can't believe that stuff because the dates are messed up. It's unreliable. Would Luke let us away with that? Well, absolutely not. And you need to know this stuff because this is not myth. This is not fairy tale. This is true. It is history, but history with significance for you today in 2019 because it will change your life. The earthly ruler. The earthly rulers. The earthly rulers in the context of the heavenly king. Verse 4, So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. And he went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. We've already met Mary in chapter 1. Thought about her last week. Verse 6, while they were there, they, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to the firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. 
Now, the secular Western mind, what does it do with those words? Well, it asks questions, and it adds. In fact, it sentimentalizes. So, when it comes to no room for them in the inn, well, we build a whole nativity narrative around that. You know the story of little Johnny, don't you? Little Johnny was raging. He wanted to be cast as Joseph, but Mrs. Hardnut, who was his primary three teacher, decided instead to cast him as the innkeeper. As the curtains went up and the lights went down on the day of the nativity play, Mrs. Hardnut over the side, the hush descended, and Mary and Joseph were wandering in. This is a nativity play. We're wandering in, and little Johnny was there, and he had dreamt up his revenge. He was bitter and twisted that he was not Joseph and just the innkeeper. Mary and Joseph walked towards him. Joseph says, we have been traveling a long distance, and we have no room for us to stay in, in the inn. Well, little Johnny, quick as a flash, decided, I certainly come right in. <laughs> the Tivoli play ran a little differently that year. So that's what society does, culture does. It over-sentimentalizes this narrative. We don't really know what's happening here in terms of in. Was it a stable or was it a guest room in a house? What is go Well, what was the manger? It was probably a feeding trough, but, trough, but it's difficult to sing. Ah, way in, ah, feeding trough. That's a hard one to sing. What is Luke's point? What is he conveying? Well, the contrast is in verse 7. The contrast is in verse 6, verse 5, verse 4. What do we have? What are we dealing with? We're dealing with royalty. We're dealing with the heavenly king. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Bethlehem, the town of David. Who is David? The great king. Because, we're told, just in case we don't get the hint, because he belonged to the house and lineage, the line of David. He had blue blood coursing through his veins. This humble carpenter was of royal descent. He went there to register with Mary. She also, she too, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. Hmm. Virgin birth? How are you with that? What do you think? In the dark night of your soul or the dark night of night? What do you think of that? How are you with that? my theological education that was scoffed at Trinity College Dublin. Don't tell me you believe in resurrections. Don't tell me you believe in virgin births. Are you serious? I'm sitting there, I was 23-ish, with first-year undergrads in Trinity College. And what do you think? History, consistently, the Bible, consistently, Mary, the virgin. No relationship with Joseph prior to this. This heavenly king being born in the context of an earthly ruler. What happens next? Well, we're back to this heavenly interpretation of these earthly events. 
a heavenly announcement. Verse 8, and there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. Do you know how many articles there are on the shepherds? Go to Google, not now. Not now, please don't go to Google now. Turn off your phones, pay attention to me. Do you know how many articles there are discussing would shepherds be out in the fields in December time? Or is it September time? Or is it April? No, it's not. Definitely not. That's when Easter and St. Patrick's Day is roughly. Couldn't be then. Do you know how many articles? Do you know how much skepticism there is around these texts? And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. And the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. Now, when you read the word glory in the Bible, think greatness, unspeakable incredibleness. When Paul talks about the glory of God, he talks about the glory of God being carried around in jars of clay. When John talks about the glory of God, the other gospel writer who had his own mission, when John talks about the glory of God, the glory of God comes in the death of Jesus Christ. When the Old Testament discusses the glory of God, well, it's this Shekinah glory. It's impossible to look at and not be changed or die. An incredible thing. This is not Wizard of Oz kind of smoke and mirrors. This is the shining glory of God, unspeakably brilliant. The angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And normally at that point in the nativity play, one of those spotlights will be turned on, right? I can't see now. I've looked straight into that spotlight, and I can't see. And there were what? Well, precisely, correctly responding, terrified. Zechariah was terrified. Mary was, well, slightly understated here, isn't it? Greatly troubled. But these shepherds, you can imagine what it's like. These hard nuts who may have killed a wolf with their own bare hands. They were hard. These were hard men. I grew up on a farm. My father's a farmer. My father's hands are probably twice the size of mine. He looks at mine and says, you don't know a day's work in your life. They're rugged, rough. And he hasn't been farming for about 14, 15 years. No hand cream, Nivea. No such thing for him. But you can imagine what these guys' hands were like. Have you ever slept rough, slept outside, slept under the stars? What were they? Terrified. They were absent. They responded completely appropriately. They were scared, stiff, because what? The glory of the Lord shone around them. But of course, God wasn't going to leave them without a revelation without a message, without an announcement. And this is typical, isn't it? All of these other heavenly meetings that we've already had in Luke, they begin with, don't be afraid. Calm down. It's okay. Would you have been reassured of that? I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people We've got a sample here, don't we, in verse 8 of all the people, shepherds. But they're not important. They're manual laborers. This, this news is for you, this angel says. Great joy will be for all the people, not just some of the people, not a particular class, not a particular nation, 
not a particular color of skin, not a particular hair color or her absence. All the people, universal. Verse 1, in those days Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. You've got this earthly king, this earthly despot. And then you've got the heavenly king. Here's news for everyone about my king, my ruler, my anointed one. Verse 11, today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. Often, whenever a baby's born, parents have aspirations for that child. President, Mr. and Mrs. Trump, could you imagine? Just as little Donald was there, his first Big Mac chawing without teeth, a gummy chewing on his first Big Mac. He's going to be president. He will be president. He will be, he will be president. Might have been an aspiration of the parents. It, when you come to children, you have aspirations for them all. Uh, five. I'm not going to tell you what our hopes are. One of them is here. Two of them are here this evening. It's going well. Anyway, um, but what do you have here is exactly who he is. This baby, a savior, Christ, anointed one, king, ruler, Messiah. Christ is not Jesus' surname. Christ is Jesus' title. Christ the Lord. Remember that film in Mel Gibson, The Passion of the Christ? The title was absolutely right. Putting that definite article before Christ was absolutely right. The Passion of Christ. No, no, no. The Passion of the Christ. Absolutely right. And that's what we've got here. Christ the Lord. This baby, humbly born in an inn, in a feeding trough, just laid down. Verse 12, this will be a sign to you. He doesn't have the word Christ tattooed on his forehead. This will be a sign to you, the angel says. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. That's quite significant, the wrapped in cloths cloth thing. It's mentioned twice in this passage. As the baby is born, wrapped in cloths. The earthly wrapping of the Son of God. Can you imagine? For comfort and security. When a baby is born, you, you learn to fold a blanket over the baby so that arms are tucked in. You know the arms flail you know, when a baby's born. The arms are everywhere. Legs everywhere also as a baby kicks and wrapped in cloths, lying in a feeding trough. You can see it. You can see what he's getting at here, can't you? It's so obvious. The humble circumstance of the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Christ, the Lord. He is the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, God's King. And suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, do you remember Handel's Messiah? Do you ever listen to Handel's Messiah? Glory to God. Well, here's those, those words come from. Glory to God in the highest, 
and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. So this is what this baby will bring, peace. Glory to God, salvation. Earthly ruler, heavenly king. Heavenly announcement, earthly confirmation. When the angels, verse 15, had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has told us about. Probably in a more excited way than I've just done. Shall we go? Shall we go? What time's the next bus or train to Bethlehem? Let's go to Bethlehem. Someone check the iPhone, the TransLink thing. They're probably late anyway. So we'll just walk. Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. They knew it. These dumb shepherds knew. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in a manger, just as it had been promised just as it had been given in the heavenly announcement, this earthly confirmation. They go there, they find the baby. It's all true. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what they'd been told about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen which were just as they had been told. You see, God explained what he was at. God is explaining what he is at to you this evening. Luke is rooting it in history. He's giving us the facts, and God is giving us his explanation. The heavenly announcement, the words of the angel, the angelic hosts praising God and singing, glory to God in the highest. Who is this baby? This baby, not simply an aspiration of the angels or the sentimental shepherds or the very wise men or Mary and Joseph, the doting parents, one of whom was connected to the birth. N not an aspiration, but a fact. On the eighth day, verse 21, when it was time to circumcise him, he was a Jew. That's what happened on the eighth day of the birth of a male. He was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he had been conceived. It all had been promised, and now it's fulfilled. And Luke writes about it so that we may understand it, so that we may trust so it may take it as fact, not propaganda. Isn't that how the Bible's described? Isn't that how the Bible's dismissed, propaganda? Is he that to you? For that is what he is. Is he Christ? Is he King? Is he Savior to you? That's the question that's big. It did happen. Do you trust it? It did happen. Do you trust him? Let's pray.
Rather, these incredible scenes, we simply can't get our head around them. Father, these incredible scenes and these incredible words, the contrast here between greatness and humility, the contrast between humility and the pomposity of a Caesar demanding that all the known world would be his, yet the eternal reality that all the world, all the nations, all the ages, all the generations, all the peoples are yours. Father, we pray that we would bow our hearts. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.